It's Monday, September 19th, 2022, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen, Hoover's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm not the only fellow, however, who's doing podcasts these days. If you don't believe me, go to Hoover's website and check it out yourself. Our website is hoover.org. Click on the tab at the top of the page. It says commentary, then scroll over to where it says multimedia, and up will come a whole menu of podcasts. You can subscribe to any or all of them on iTunes. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcasts your inbox each and every month. My guest today is Karis Templeman. Karis is a research fellow here at the Hoover Institute where he serves as the program manager of Hoover's project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific. He's also a lecturer at the Center for East Asian Studies, where he teaches a course on Taiwan politics. A political scientist for the PhD of the University of Michigan, Karis Templeman's research interests include Taiwan politics, democratization, elections and election management, party system development, dominant party systems, and politics and security issues in Pacific Asia, among other topics. As you might have deduced by now, today's conversation will focus on Taiwan and what the future holds that island. Karis, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Bill. So uh, we get the Good Timing Award here today. President Biden was on uh, 60 Minutes last night and up came the topic I Taiwan. And here is what the president did. He was asked in the interview uh, whether U.S. forces would uh, back Taiwan in the event of invasion by China. The president's word, Karsis, quote, yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. He was then asked to clarify, Karsis, if American men and women would be involved in defending Taiwan in the event of said invasion. The president's one word response was yes. Now, there's more to the story. China's foreign ministry has since weighed in, uh, responding earlier today, saying that China has lodged a, quote, stern representation with the United States. And this quote from a ministry spokesperson, quote, we are willing to do our best to strive for peaceful reunification. At the same time, we will not tolerate any activities aimed at secession. So, Karsis, this is not the first time the president has done this. As recently as last October, he was asked if the U.S. would commit uh, to Taiwan's defense. His answer then, quote, yes, we have a commitment to do that. So I'm a little confused here. The president says we'll come to Taiwan's defense. Uh, I'm not sure if the policy says that in black and white, Karsis. Can you kind of help solve what's going on here and kind of give us some strategic clarity, as they say, with regards to the U.S. position to Taiwan? Uh, Well, the U.S., position right now is a a position of uh, strategic confusion, I think. Um, We've got a contradiction between what the president himself is saying and what members of his administration are saying about U.S.-Taiwan policy. Um, I'd note a couple of things here. Um, First off, uh, the president does have the prerogative uh, to send in uh, U.S. forces to defend Taiwan. The, um, The Taiwan Relations Act actually gives the executive branch broad leeway to decide what we do in the event of a Taiwan contingency. Um, And so when he says unequivocally that he would send in uh, forces and and defend Taiwan, that's well within his purview. Uh, It's not a violation of US policy to do that. Uh, And in fact, we don't use the term uh, in any policy documents, at least, uh, strategic ambiguity to describe our policy. So uh, that's the piece actually that's a little bit less concerning to me. Um, The piece that's more concerning is uh, Biden said uh, that the Taiwan side um, can uh, decide for themselves uh, their future and that we will support them in whatever decision they make. That's actually not consistent with uh, 40 years of US policy uh, where uh, instead our policy is that both sides of the strait uh, should uh, without coercion, 
decide mutually what the future of Taiwan uh, should be. Uh, and uh, that the U.S. opposes unilateral changes to the status quo by either side of the strait. And so we do not support Taiwanese independence, uh, but we also do not support uh, unification if it's not done uh, through a negotiated solution with the full will of the, the full endorsement of the Taiwan people. So though um, the president says that the U.S. will come to Taiwan's defense, you're saying that he is not making news then? Uh, yes, I think um, what's new here is that he's said it so forcefully, so so publicly. Um, but I think uh, the PRC has long assumed that the U.S. would uh, intervene in a Taiwan contingency if they used military force. Uh, and uh, part of our um, deliberate ambiguity about what we would do uh, is the worry about the other side of this equation, which is entrapment. So we want to deter the PRC from moving on Taiwan. Uh, but we also want to deter the Taiwan side from doing something that provokes Beijing uh, into moving on Taiwan. Um, and so it's not in the U.S. interest to fight a war with China in order to uh, ensure that Taiwan is an independent country with full recognition in the interstate system. Uh, that was a decision made 42 years ago by the Carter administration. Subsequent Republican and Democratic administrations have all followed that line. And so... Um, yeah, so we're in a position now where uh, it's it's actually <laughs> Biden has not only you know clarified that he personally would intervene, but but that uh, we might support Taiwan independence, and it's that second piece that's going to really be worrisome to Beijing, I think. So then, why does the White House scramble so quickly when the president does this? This is, I think, you mentioned before we got on the air, it's the fourth time he has done this now. Yeah. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I, I frankly don't know exactly what's going on. I think uh, part of it is that uh, Biden himself uh, has dealt with these issues for a really long time, kind of has made up his own mind about uh, what he thinks U.S. policy should be. Uh, there are very good longstanding reasons to kind of follow the, the catechism, the, the set of talking points over Taiwan. And, you know, even a very experienced president can kind of trip up over that language. Um, and uh, Biden, on this issue, apparently is not uh, taking a lot of coaching about how to how to address it in public. Uh, and so, uh, his administration is trying to subtly shift U.S. policy in a way that uh, helps Taiwan without undermining our own interests and undermining the cross-strait status quo. Uh, and uh, Biden has kind of repeatedly, you know. Uh, upset the apple cart a little bit and forced his own uh, own advisors to kind of scramble to cover for that. Um, so if you had the opportunity to coach the president on this, what would you tell him to say? Well, I think at this point, there's so much confusion that uh, it, it probably makes sense to have uh, a, a policy process that results in a kind of clear reiteration of U.S. talking points about Taiwan and have the president give that speech and not deviate a word from it. Um, and I would advise him to say we do not support Taiwan independence, uh, but we also place great value on uh, the stability of the cross-strait status quo. Beijing has been changing the status quo relentlessly over the last six years. And so we feel compelled to respond to Beijing's actions. Uh, and above all, we want to see uh, peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and uh, Beijing's increasing military coercion against the democratically elected leader of Taiwan 
that coercion is far from uh, maintaining peace and stability across the strait. And so we'll do what we think is necessary to reinforce Taiwan's position in the face of that coercion, something along those lines. All right. And is a speech required right now? Does the president have to go out and clean up or can the system, can the situation just kind of go on as is? Well, it probably can go on for a little while, but uh, the the real answer to that question lies in Beijing and and what Beijing uh, is uh, willing and prepared to do uh, to try to enforce their own bottom lines over Taiwan. let me put it this way. The CCP right now uh, views Taiwan as an existential issue. Um, they are committed to eventual unification and the, the, you know, the, the final rejuvenation of the motherland, as they would put it. Um, and Taiwan is a, it, the last kind of critical territorial piece um, that uh, has not been subsumed under PRC rule. Um, But uh, we also know from the past 72 years of experience that uh, the current status quo is not an existential issue for them. They can can handle uh, a Taiwan that is de facto not part of the PRC as long as a path to eventual unification is not uh, unequivocally closed off. Um, And so uh, when we say we support Taiwan independence or uh, we will oppose any attempt by Beijing to force unification, um, we are coming close to closing off that path and turning this issue from a tolerable one for the CCP, in my reading at least, to one that is intolerable and that may force them uh, or they may feel compelled uh, to take fairly risky and costly actions in order to enforce uh, their view of what the future should be. You recently were in Taiwan. You and a uh, delegation of uh, some Hoover colleagues uh, went over in late August. Uh, let's talk about life on the island. It's an island, Carsis, that I think is uh, about um, about the size of Maryland, if I'm not mistaken. I think the population is about 24 million, which is a little larger than Florida, which I think is about 22 million. A newcomer to Taiwan lands on the island, and what does he or see she? What do you take notice of when you first show up there? Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, for lack of a better term, a first world country with first-rate infrastructure, um, a well, well-run urban transit system, an airport that's you know wouldn't be out of place in the U.S. or in other parts of Asia. Um, it's a very prosperous place. Uh, it's you know, a peaceful place, and then the people who greet you are invariably quite friendly to Americans. It's one of the most pro-American places in the world. Israel might be the other. It's like like going to South Korea. Yeah. 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 And even South Korea has some elements, you know, there's some tinge of anti-Americanism in some some parts of South Korea. Um, Taiwan doesn't really have that. And so, um, you know, I've been going to Taiwan since 2001 and it it never fails to impress me. You know, people will ask you, your, the first or second question is, where are you from? And when you say American, the reaction is great. You know, that's, you, you, you're you elevated in their eyes rather than lowered. Uh, and in a lot of other parts of the world, sometimes you want to say you're a Canadian rather than American, simply because of the, the kind of latent anti-Americanism in places. So um, so Taiwan is a, is a, a wonderful, friendly, um, well-functioning place um, uh, from an American point of view. And the uh, delegations, the purpose of your uh, visit, the delegations in August. Right. So we had a couple objectives. Uh, One is we were planning for a couple of years to take a group from uh, Stanford and Hoover to Taiwan. Um, 
And because of COVID and the restrictions on getting into Taiwan, they were among the strictest in the world for a long period of time. Uh, we, we would have had to go through a 14-day quarantine in a hotel by ourselves uh, in individual rooms. And so uh, none of our group had the, the kind of spare time to do that. Uh, and so we had to wait until the quarantine uh, was reduced. Uh, it's now down to three days. Uh, and even those three days, there's a lot of flexibility in the, the kind of requirements that you have to meet. Um, so uh, first goal was just to get people into Taiwan who hadn't been there in a while and wanted to uh, have some conversations with old friends and colleagues uh, and the political leadership in Taiwan and get a sense of how things have changed since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, a second, I think, was to convey certain messages from the United States side. So we had people in in the delegation who were in the past administration, um, past administrations, I should say, both Democratic and Republican, um, who were very worried about the cross-strait military imbalance, that growing imbalance, Taiwan's apparent reluctance to accelerate their own defense preparations uh, in the face of a rising threat. Uh, and uh, they wanted to communicate a message that, that Taiwan needed to take the threat very urgently and seriously. Um, and um, a third, I think, was just to establish a, a set of working channels between Hoover and Stanford and uh, high-level people in Taiwan, um, because we think uh, our own institutions bring uh, some some important advantages uh, to uh, a potential cross cross Pacific conversation. Um, one is that we're located in Silicon Valley, and so we had a kind of a, a side trip to Shinju, where the semiconductor manufacturing firms are located in Taiwan. Right. Had a day of visits there, and so uh, we learned a lot about uh, how leaders in the semiconductor industry view the cross strait threat, uh, view their uh, deep entanglement in the US-China trade war, uh, the increasingly hot competition over uh, the most advanced semiconductor production. Um, and uh, we heard an earful from a lot of people about US policy and about uh, the their, their own view of, of the threat versus opportunity calculation uh, that comes with investing in the mainland. Um, so for those those three or four reasons, uh, we wanted to take a group over. The Taiwanese individuals that you talked to, Karis, do they believe that they are in the middle of a crisis right now? And maybe before we answer that question, why don't we first do a little background here? Um, the conversation that we're currently in the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. Uh, give us a little background if you could. So the first crisis, Karis, was 1954 to 1955. How was that resolved? Uh, first crisis uh, started with... Uh, the PLA firing artillery shells at a couple offshore islands just off the coast of mainland China that were still under the control of the Republic of China, which uh, today is still the formal name of Taiwan. So, um, uh, so there's a you know a series of um, uh, artillery uh, volleys uh, that hit uh, Jinmen and Mazu, mm -hmm. uh, also known as Kimoi and um, Kinmen. Um, and, uh, that, that, uh, exchange of artillery fire went on for several months. Uh, eventually the, the PRC side decided to stop it. I think under pressure from the Soviet union, I can't remember all of the, the details. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there was a similar kind of confrontation in 1958, uh, where again, Mao Zedong wanted to, uh, kind of press the issue. Um, and, um, 
you know, so there was another exchange of artillery fire that went on for several months. Uh, 1958. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, that is now colloquially known as the second Taiwan Strait crisis. And then the third Uh, one's 1995. Yeah. And that's qualitatively different. Um, Really, I wouldn't even lump in the first two with what's happened in the last couple of months or with the 95, 96 incident. A couple of things are fundamentally different. One is, uh, the uh, PRC is a much more powerful country now than it was in uh, 1955 or 58. Uh, number two, the Cold War is over. The Soviet Union is not the big player here. Uh, the PRC is really acting on its own and not in coordination with uh, you know, Big Brother in Moscow. Um, three, Taiwan's a democracy. Uh, and it was in 95, 96. And in fact, the real fundamental issue in 95, 96 was the U.S., uh, from from Beijing's perspective, the U.S. overly friendly treatment of the elected president of Taiwan. We issued Li Donghui a visa to come to the United States and give a public speech at Cornell. Uh, and uh, to Beijing, Beijing wanted to establish that that was unacceptable to them. And so uh, engaged in a bunch of military exercises in the approaches to Taiwan's northern and southern ports. Um, uh, that was eventually resolved after the March 1996 presidential election when Li Donghui uh, won re-election. Beijing had warned Taiwan voters against voting for Li. It backfired. He won by more than anticipated. Uh, and so the, the Beijing, the lesson that Beijing took away from that was partly that uh, they could signal to the U.S. using these military exercises and probably get us to back off a little bit. They mm-hmm. could not affect public opinion very well that way. And in fact, it was more likely to backfire. And so since 95, 96, they pursued a pretty different strategy towards trying to win hearts and minds in Taiwan. And that is uh, trying to open up people to people to ties and economic integration. Um, So that then leads us to the current situation, uh, which was really uh, kicked off by the visit of US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan in early August. uh, Pelosi uh, has long uh, had a, uh, a deep interest in the uh, Taiwan issue and in human rights generally in, uh, in China. Uh, she was in, uh, in the PRC in Beijing actually shortly after Tiananmen and unveiled a flag there on a congressional delegation <laughs> um, uh, that quickly got, you know, she quickly got confiscated by the the security forces there. But uh, this is not uh, just a a political stunt for her. This is something that runs deep in her political career. I mean, she represents one of the largest Chinatowns in the United States. Uh, When she came into office, there was still daily competition between the KMT office in San Francisco and the the CCP office in San Francisco. And so uh, my reading of this is that this you know, even though people in in the Biden administration warned her against going, um, that she was fully committed to this and wanted uh, to do it because she thought it was the right thing to do. Um, yeah, they warned her, but they didn't stop her. Um, so let's get back to the question now. Do you think this is indeed a crisis? And talking to the locals in Taiwan, do they see themselves in the middle of a crisis? <laughs> um I think looking back, we in the kind of foreign policy community will refer to this as the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. But uh, in Taiwan, you don't get the sense that this is some kind of uh, definitive break with the past. Um, Taiwan has been under PRC pressure and coercion for a long, long time. And uh, in some ways, uh, well, 
there's overwhelming gratitude to uh, Pelosi and to other members of Congress who've come and visited both Republican and Democrat over the past few months uh, for being willing to buck Beijing's objections and come and, and show solidarity with Taiwan. That the symbolic part of this is actually very important to building Taiwanese confidence uh, in uh, the United States and the rest of the, the Western world that Taiwan is not isolated and alone in facing off against this authoritarian behemoth across the strait. And so we actually heard uh, almost unequivocally, almost universally, that uh, the Taiwanese welcomed Pelosi's visit and uh, would welcome more visits like that, and that uh, this was the kind of thing that needed to happen if Beijing, Beijing's coercion was to be um, pushed back against. Um, so sorry to give a long-winded kind of convoluted answer to that, but I think uh, from a foreign policy perspective, yes, this is a crisis. From Taiwan's perspective, the crisis started a long time ago. Uh, and this is just another kind of, this is a, a wave of what's a, a much longer period of uh, consistent coercion from Beijing. I'm now going to dumb down your uh, very erudite policy answer with a uh, pop culture reference. I want to remind sure. you of the game show, Let's Make a Deal, in which you have a choice to choose behind what's door number one, door number two, door number three. Mm -hmm. If you're Taiwan cars, it seems to me that door number one would be independence, door number two would be unification, and door number three would be the status quo. So your sense as to what the island's people and its leadership want, and is there any difference maybe between what the people want and what the leadership want? Yeah, uh, well... Um, we have good polling data on this going way back, and the overwhelming answer is door number three, the status quo. Mm -hmm. um, when you dig down into those polling data, uh, you find uh, the reason people support the status quo is that they're worried about a conflict. Uh, and so it's the threat from Beijing that keeps uh, Taiwanese leadership uh, and Taiwanese public opinion from supporting a declaration of independence. It's uh, it's a quite credible threat that Beijing would attack if Taiwan declared formal independence. Um, support for unification used to be in about the 10 to 15 percent range uh, two decades ago. That has declined now to the point where uh, even if you do unification at some point in the future, if the two countries come close to the same level of economic development and similar political systems, that's down now in the 10 percent range. Um, did, did, Hong, did Hong Kong drive that down? Yes, significantly. Hong Kong has the single biggest has had the single biggest impact on Taiwan public opinion in the last decade, um, and the main reason for that is the only option that Beijing holds out for unification uh, is a Hong Kong style one country two systems model. They have not proposed anything else, and in fact, they've insisted that. One country, two systems is, is the only future for Taiwan. Of course, it will be under PRC rule, ruled from Beijing. Taiwan will have some degree of uh, autonomy, but uh, the, the model under which Ty Hong Kong came under PRC control is the best that Taiwan would ever get. Um, and so given what happened in 2019 in Hong Kong uh, and the crackdown in 2020, uh, that is a not very appealing option for the vast majority of Taiwanese now. And they just unequivocally reject one country, two systems as a, a potential future for their own place. Okay, so on the island, the status quo seen is acceptable. But what about the view on the other side of the straight cars in China? I'm asking you now to read Xi Jinping's mind and that government's mind. But how long do you think they're willing to go along with the status quo? 
so this is a major point of debate uh, within the China Watcher community. And even within our own delegation, we don't have a consistent answer to this question. So the way I would phrase it is that uh, Beijing has traditionally approached the Taiwan issue and their, their, the buildup of their military forces and their mix of threats and incentives as seeking a, one goal, and that is to deter independence. Uh, They can live with the status quo. They can't live with a declaration of independence. Uh, U.S. policy has been premised on that assumption for the last 40 years. Uh, Taiwan policy has generally been premised on that assumption. There's now, though, a growing concern that under Xi Jinping, especially in his presumed third term as general party secretary, that Taiwan is such an important issue for him and it's a legacy issue. He needs to make progress on it to have, to kind of establish his legitimacy and stay in power even, uh, that he may have switched in his own mind from deterring independence to now needing to compel unification by a specific date. Uh, and then there's so there's debate about whether that switch has been made. There's also debate about if the switch has been made, what is the date by which Taiwan must be unified with the PRC? Uh, and the earliest date that we've heard uh, some people speculate about is 2027, which is the end of Xi Jinping's presumed third term. Mm-hmm. Um, 2035 is another date that gets thrown around a lot as uh, the the point at which the PLA's uh, modernization efforts uh, come to their conclusion, their culmination, and they may, if they think they uh, need to compel unification by then, they may think they have a uh, a, the military ability to do so. Um, And then 2049 is the uh, 100th anniversary of the PRC's founding. that also has been pointed to as a, uh, if not Xi Jinping, then his successor, a kind of critical moment at which if Taiwan is not part of the PRC by then, the leader there will feel a lot of domestic pressure to move. So going back to what the foreign ministry spokesperson said when uh, she used the word secession here to describe Taiwan cars, that suggests that China would want some sort of staged act of provocation to justify an invasion. So how do you think they would try to pull it off? What, what sort of stunt do you think they would pull? So if they were looking for a provocation, uh, you would have to be pretty rash uh, to move on Taiwan right now using a military option. Um, By far the best outcome from their perspective is uh, the United States washes our hands of the Taiwan issue, says uh, this is clearly much more important to you, Xi Jinping, or you, the CCP. We view your threats credibly. We don't want to get into a hot war with you. We'll trade Taiwan for something else. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll step back and you negotiate with them directly. We're not going to get involved. Um, and I think there actually is, um, if not a consensus, then that is probably the majority view in Beijing about how this will ultimately end, that uh, it's not going to be a military invasion. It's going to be the United States because of our own domestic turmoil or dysfunction or uh, the decline in our own economic vitality that uh, we're just not in a position five or 10 or 15 or 20 years out to intervene in the face of this growing strength from China uh, and that we will just cut our losses and run at some point. Um, And so I think uh, 
the the messaging from Beijing is still going to be, you know, don't declare independence. Uh, we're uh, timelines are on our side. Uh, we're content to wait this out, but you need to stick to the commitments. Uh, you, meaning the U.S., need to stick to your commitments uh, that you agreed to with us uh, way back in the day. I'm curious, during your time uh, in your uh, latest visit, Cars, how often did the word Ukraine come up in conversations? Uh, a fair amount. Uh, it was usually our side that brought it up. <laughs> um, not surprisingly, uh, one of the members of our delegation was the former ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall. Um, and so just his presence as part of the delegation meant that it, it was um, uh, a central talking point in a lot of our conversations. Um, and uh, to be frank, the Taiwanese have paid close attention to that conflict. And I think it has fundamentally shifted some thinking, uh, both among the, the elite, the leadership in Taipei, and more broadly among public opinion in, in Taiwan. So uh, the shift at the elite level is uh, a much more kind of concrete focus on uh, armaments, uh, weapons packages that they've purchased from the U.S. that have not right. been delivered, um, and uh, an interest in coordinating much more closely, and not just talking the talk, but walking the walk on how to procure the stuff that Taiwan needs that the Ukrainians have been using very effectively against uh, the Russian invasion. Um, at the mass public level, uh, public opinion has actually, uh, the, the will to fight among the Taiwanese public, according to public opinion polls, has actually gone up uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and uh, there's actually much more support than there was a year ago for lengthening the term of conscription again. Uh, right now, Taiwan only has a four-month conscription period. It's basically worthless. A lot of people call it summer camp. Uh, there's not a whole lot of training that goes on there. Um, and there's a, a broad recognition now, even among young people who would potentially be required to dedicate a year of their lives to uh, to serving in the military uh, for just in an abstract sense, at least the reasonableness of that policy of, of going back to a conscription model. And so uh, I was heartened. I don't know. I can't speak for the rest of my delegation, but um Given my past visits and past conversations in Taiwan, I was heartened by that shift. I thought there's there's a much more kind of practical focus on the real issues of concern in Taiwan's defense establishment. Uh, compare or contrast, uh, say Ing Wen to um, Vladimir Zelensky. <laughs> uh, so Tsai Ing Wen is. Uh, on the surface, about as far as you could get. Um, she, she's the president of Taiwan. Right? The president of Taiwan. She's the uh, longtime leader of the Democratic Progressive Party, the ruling party as well. Uh, she has a background as a trade negotiator. Uh, she holds a PhD uh, in international relations from London School of Economics. Mm -hmm. um, she uh, has been in politics for um, probably half her life. Um, and uh, she... She's actually quite, quite soft-spoken, uh, not a particularly charismatic speaker on the stump, not somebody who's going to mug for the cameras or give these really inspiring speeches that rally the nation to defend. Uh, she really, those, that's not where her political strengths lie. Um, they're really, though, uh, she is a very impressive person in private, in small group settings. Um, so we had the the opportunity to meet with her, um, the privilege to meet with her while we were there. And uh, in the small group setting with our delegation, she is uh, incredibly 
charming, masterful. Uh, she, she's mastered all the details. Uh, she's very good at kind of addressing, uh, you know, pretty complicated political and policy questions uh, in a way that isn't just kind of waving her hands. She actually, she knows the details and has a good command of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she's also, I have to say this as someone who studies Taiwan domestic politics, uh, she's just a master at handling the intra-party conflicts that inevitably come up in, you know, the fighting for spoils and positions and nominations uh, she has done a better job of that over a longer period of time than any other Taiwanese politician that I can think of. Uh, I, ask so this course, not, yeah. I ask this because Zelensky has, of course, become uh, you know, a cult of personality, this symbol for Ukraine of resistance and his words yeah. and actions and so forth. But I'm curious if Taiwan and its democracy also abides by cult of personality. Uh, well, there's certainly in the pre-democratic era, a big cult of personality around Chiang Kai-shek and right. Jiang Qingguo, right? There's statues of Chiang Kai-shek all over the island still. Um, but I mean, you can argue the United States goes by a cult of personality, Barack Obama, <laughs> Donald Trump, for, for better yeah. or for worse. But what about Taiwan? Well, um, I would maybe l- let me rephrase that as, uh, is there a strong kind of personal versus party appeal? Um and I think uh, it's a presidential system. The president has a personal kind of brand or appeal that he or she uses to win votes uh, across presidencies and across parties in Taiwan. But uh, Tsai Ing-wen also does have a certain uh, kind of brand that she promotes um, that focuses on things like her cats. Uh, the fact that she's got two cats, uh, she's uh, she's kind of portrayed in the in the. DPP campaign advertisements and and uh, their their media as someone who's very thoughtful but also very motherly, very uh, kind of matronly. You know, the example from uh, other countries might be a kind of Indira Gandhi, um, uh, someone who's uh, you know has an iron will but also kind of um, the mother of the nation sort of thing. Um, I wouldn't go quite that far with Tsai yet, but, um, she does have some elements of that in her, her public persona and how it's managed. And how would she, how would the leaders tap into national identity? Uh, if indeed a crisis, indeed an invasion, for example, seemed eminent, you know, here in America, we would draw back to the revolution, but how did the Taiwanese handle that? Yeah. So this is, um, that's a great question. Um, national identity and, and divisions over that question have really right. structured Taiwan politics for the entire democratic era. There is com- increasing convergence um, within the public and the elites on what Taiwan national identity means. And it's, a, it's an embrace of this older Republic of China nationalism that views Taiwan as uh, if not part of the PRC, at least uh, culturally and ethnically somewhat Chinese, uh, but that embraces particularly the democratic constitutional liberal aspects of the Republic of China, and then merges that with the idea of uh, a Taiwanese identity based on the people in Taiwan uh, who are not defined by a specific language or set of uh, cultural inheritances from the mainland, but actually blend you know, 50 years of Japanese colonial occupation that blends migration from lots of different parts of greater China, uh, that blend increasingly um, new immigrants from Southeast Asia who marry uh, Taiwanese and settle down there and have multi-ethnic kids. Um, And so it's a, a kind of civic nationalism that doesn't 
play on uh, kind of a constructed theory or constructed narrative about blood ties going way back into antiquity. Um, and so it's first and foremost, it puts the fact that Taiwan is a democratic liberal country front and center and both major political parties can embrace that definition. Now let's talk about the conversation we should be having here in this country, our always mm. attention distracted country, uh, the U.S. interest in Taiwan. Um, obviously, you can compare this to Ukraine and say, well, this is not what the United States stands for, the idea of a bullying autocracy gobbling up a, a much smaller democracy. But what is really at stake here for the United States besides the principle of freedom? Yeah, well, uh, so one big difference with Ukraine is Taiwan is the United States' 10th largest trading partner. It's right. uh, really important to us. Uh, a good example of this is the semiconductor industry. Um, the the uh, vast majority of the most advanced semiconductor chips are produced in fabs in Taiwan itself. And so if the United States were to lose access to those fabs and God forbid the uh, PRC have exclusive control over them, uh, we would be cut off from the vast majority of the world's most advanced semiconductors. Right. Uh, we already saw what happens when supply chains get a little bit disrupted because of COVID. And uh, the auto industry was struggling to put out cars because they couldn't get enough uh, semiconductor chips because they hadn't placed orders with the Taiwanese. The Taiwanese are the major supplier of a lot of these. So uh, we would be in a, a very difficult short run economic position uh, if we lost uh, any kind of trading ties with Taiwan. Um, so that's one. A second, Taiwan actually lies in a very geostrategically important area. Um, it's just to the south of Japan. Uh, it's just to the north of the Philippines. Both of those are U.S. treaty allies. Uh, we are obligated to come to their defense in the event of a conflict. Uh, the most likely adversary in a conflict with either of those countries is the PRC. And so if the PRC held control over Taiwan proper, it becomes a much, much more difficult problem for the United States to intervene in a conflict to defend the other two places. Um, for Japan, it's furthermore an existential issue because Taiwan lies astride their sea lanes. Um, so the vast majority of energy coming to Japan comes through either the Taiwan Strait or to the east of Taiwan. And uh, Japan could face uh, real coercion from the PLA Navy uh, if it were uh, in control of Taiwan's east coast ports and could blockade then uh, any sort of energy supplies coming in. Um, so. Uh, Taiwan's location is also important. If if uh, if there's a hostile power on Taiwan, the U.S. presence militarily in the Western Pacific becomes uh, shaky, if not untenable. And what of foreign investment in Taiwan right now? Um, if we're suggesting that maybe an invasion could occur by 2027, who knows? But let's put a five-year window on it. Uh, are we seeing any flight of capital right now, any reluctance on the part of overseas investors to want to put money into the island? Uh, we're really not. We're seeing, I think, more capital flight out of mainland China. Uh, and some of that's actually coming back to Taiwan. It's it's hard to get good numbers on this because uh, for obvious political reasons, the Taiwanese will channel a lot of their investment through Cayman Islands or other kinds of offshore places. Uh, but a lot of uh, foreign direct investment in China actually has come from Taiwan proper and is now kind of being pulled out and redirected to other parts of the world. So I actually think China has a great deal to lose economically, even from coercing Taiwan, um, and potentially has much more economically to lose than the United States if there is a conflict that breaks out. Uh, it will 
immediately and dramatically kind of upset the regional economic picture. Um, and uh, given their own uh, economic challenges right now at home, um, it, you would have to be quite rash to take to create that to choose uh, to create an economic crisis for yourself uh, by taking on the United States in a Taiwan contingency. So um, I actually think Taiwan is, uh, for the moment at least, there's no signs of a kind of economic crisis or capital flight or um, just general unease with the investment opportunities in Taiwan. Okay, I'm going to give you the names of three leaders here, and I want you to suggest the best move for each one in terms of de-escalation and what's best for the world. Uh, keeping in mind, at the end of the day, we want to avoid a war. We want to avoid a potential crippling of the economy uh, and so forth. So first of all, what is Joe Biden's move here? You suggested earlier maybe him giving a speech, but I'm thinking more about his relationship with China. Does he does he need to go to Beijing? Does he need to invite Xi to the U.S.? Does maybe uh, Tony Blinken need to step in? What do you think yeah. Biden should do? Well, I think we're in a, a security dilemma here where both sides are misreading the other side's near-term intentions. Um, Beijing thinks we have abandoned our one China policy, that we are uh, in in fact, if not uh, in, in uh, you know, de facto, if not de jure, uh, supporting Taiwan independence. Uh, and so um, they are taking actions to try to signal to us uh, to back off. And we are taking actions that uh, try to signal to them that a military option is unacceptable. Um, so we're in this security dilemma where we're spiraling upwards. Um, I think you probably need leader to leader talks uh, in order to reverse that spiral and build some confidence, uh, at least in the near term, that neither side is going to uh, push their own um, own position forward in a way that uh, that crosses the red lines of the other side. Um, so I would I would suggest that Biden give a speech reaffirming the U.S.'s traditional one China policy uh, and uh, reiterating that we do not support Taiwan independence. Uh, but at the same time, uh, taking uh, as many steps as necessary to strengthen defense to defense cooperation at the operational level. Um, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to send the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to Taiwan publicly and have him give a speech there and say he supports Taiwan independence. Uh, but, um, you know, more joint training between Taiwanese and U.S. forces, that's great. And I think um, we can explain that to the Chinese as, you know, this is the thing we have to do now because the military threat that you are posing is so much greater. Uh, so that's the first, <laughs> the first leader. All right, uh, Xi Jinping now. Uh, you suggested earlier, maybe he's on a path to 2027 that maybe he can or cannot correct himself. But to, to use that overused foreign policy term exit ramp, is there such a thing as an exit ramp for him with regard to Taiwan? And if so, is it a graceful exit ramp or is it just an ugly careening off the highway? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I think to this point, some people may may object to this, but I, I don't think he's painted himself into a corner. I don't think he has committed to the worst course of action on Taiwan. He doesn't talk about Taiwan a lot in his public statements. It's actually not something that appears regularly in his speeches. Uh, and so those of us outside are kind of left reading the tea leaves and trying to make a lot out of one statement here and there about Taiwan. So I think at least publicly, at least, he's given himself uh, a tremendous amount of flexibility over Taiwan policy. And so, you know, since we're, we're fantasizing about uh, my ability to, to uh, advise Xi Jinping, I would say, 
his Taiwan policy over the last year, six years has really failed. Uh, it's been, um, from my view, quite counterproductive. And it's also, it seems to be on autopilot. They haven't adjusted to major shifts within Taiwan and the US uh, in reaction to what they're doing. Um, so to give you one concrete example, Tsai Ing-wen won re-election in 2020. Beijing had put a lot of pressure on her administration and tried to undermine her popularity. Right. She won re-election by a, a larger margin than she had uh, won in 2016. Uh, and so if I'm an analyst sitting in Beijing looking at that, I can, you should not draw any conclusion other than Taiwan policy is failing right now. We need to stop doing what we're doing and try something else uh, if we want to achieve peaceful reunification. Um, so I would advise him to, you know, have a kind of a deep rethink of Taiwan policy um, and uh, return to something more like the Hu Jintao era of uh, trying to win hearts and minds via cross-strait integration. Um, that actually made a lot of progress from their perspective um, for about a decade. Um, and then uh, once Tsai Ing-wen was elected, uh, they have pursued a much more kind of coercive, hostile policy, and they're just pushing the Taiwanese further away. And then finally, Karasa Tsai Ing-wen, um, she can be seen as a villain or a provocateur in Beijing. She can be seen as sympathetic and heroic in Washington. But how does she play this situation? Let me ask you this question. If Stanford University would reach out to her and say, hey, why don't you come to our commencement in June and we'll give you a degree? What should she do? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, well, I think uh, the U.S. State Department might have something to say about that as well. Um it's probably the kind of thing she should not accept until after she is out of office. Um, however, uh, she can and should, I think, uh, speak uh, virtually to audiences in the United States and explain the Taiwan position um, and uh, indicate that while on the one hand, she recognizes U.S. concerns, uh, she um, you know, is aware of, of the U.S. interests that we do not support independence, that we do not want to provoke Beijing more than is necessary. Um, but that on the other hand, Beijing really is, um, you know, they, they've treated her very, quite poorly. She has been very careful to hew to an embrace of the status quo, not to push for changing the name of the country or the flag or other symbolic issues. Uh, and for that, she's gotten absolutely zero in response from Beijing. And so uh, I think that's, you know, one thing that she could do is to kind of highlight to a broader set of audiences in the U.S., uh, that Taiwan continues to be the responsible partner in this three-way relationship. Uh, and I, I, I personally believe that. I think the United States has been very fortunate to have her leading Taiwan over the last six years. Uh, and honestly, so has Beijing. I think they're going to miss her when she is gone, and we certainly will as well. Okay, final question, Karis. Uh, if you and I were to re-engage, have this conversation a year from now, September of 2023, do you think anything's going to be markedly different with regard to the triangle of the United States, Taiwan, and China, or does the status quo continue? Maybe the only exception, maybe President Biden stepping into it one or two more times between, <laughs> between now and then. Well, there's a couple big things that could be different. One is uh, the 20th Party Congress is coming up at the end of October. That's when we'll know whether Xi Jinping gets a third term, who's on the Politburo Standing Committee, uh, what kind of new language might be inserted into the party charter uh, about Taiwan and the future of Taiwan. 
Uh, and so we'll have a clearer idea of what Xi Jinping's presumed third term will bring. Um, and that could be, you know, the, they could back off. They could not mention Taiwan much at all. And so we are in kind of a status quo situation. Or they could say 2027 or bust, you know, or anything in between those two extremes. And so that will dictate a lot of uh, Taiwan's and the U.S. response over the next year. The other thing that's happening is... Uh, both the United States and Taiwan have uh, effectively midterm elections. Um, U.S. midterm, you know about. Um, Taiwan's uh, is every office below the national level. And the DPP actually does not look like they're going to do particularly well in those midterm elections. Tsai Ing-wen is the leader of the DPP. She's in a position right now to affect who succeeds her in the DPP and uh, potentially who the president is in 2024. Uh, if those elections don't go well for her, she may have to resign as the party chair uh, mm -hmm. and she will have less influence over who her successor is. And so uh, September 2023 will be right in the heat of the uh, kind of the start of the presidential campaign in Taiwan. Um, and you could end up with a, a quite, quite high variance, quite um, hot uh, campaign for president in 2024. I don't know who would win that in that scenario. So. Those two things are what I'm going to be keeping an eye on over the next few months. Sounds good. When do you plan to go back? Uh, sooner the better. Um, if I can get back this winter, I'd love to do that. If not, uh, certainly by uh, next spring. Okay. Carson, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me. It was a delight to talk to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Carus Templeman is on uh, Twitter. His Twitter handle is, and this is complicated, bear with me now, at Karis Borloff, that is spelled K-H-A-R-I-S-B-O-R-L-O-F-F. Karis, do you want to explain that? Oh, it's a joke. Uh, you know Boris Karloff. It uh, <laughs> <laughs> gets people to pronounce my, my name correctly. And um, I'm a big Boris Karloff fan. So uh, back in Twitter's you know infant stage, I thought this was just a throwaway handle. And unfortunately, I've got so many followers now, I can't change it. So, Okay, folks, it's at Karis Borloff again. And he has his own website, KarisTempleman.com. Templeman spelled T-E-M-P-L-E-M-A-N. You can learn more about his research and writing and teaching there. Uh, you can also sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which uh, keeps you updated on what Karis and all the Hoover Fellowship is thinking. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.